0: Okay, peeps, uh, hopefully you've got your Bibles. If you do, uh, you can turn with me. Uh, we're going to kind of be all over the place a little bit tonight. Uh, but turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, you may be here and you're like, man, I don't even know where Exodus is. So Exodus in the Old Testament. Real quickly, how many books are in the Old Testament? Um, 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 it's, it's like No, 39. 39. How many uh, are in the New Testament? 27, okay? So you got 39. Now look, real quickly. In the Old Testament, it's broken up in in really three different sections, okay? The Old Testament's broken up uh, with a, a group of 17 books, a group of five books, and a group of another 17 books, okay? You got 17 that are historical And in the historical narratives, you have the book of Exodus, okay? Then after the historical books, you've got five poetical books, and then after that, you've got 17 prophetic books, okay? So those are the numbers to realize. But here's the deal. You've got Genesis, and then right after the book of Genesis, you have the book of Exodus, okay? So Exodus chapter 3. And tonight, what we're going to do is I'm going to show you six qualities, characteristics of who God is. Last week, we talked about who we are, and as we talked about who we are, we talked about that we are image-bearers of God, that we are image-bearers of God, that we are His creation. And if we are His creation, the implication is, is that uh, if we are indeed His creation, then we really don't get a significant say to the Creator of who gets to do what or who becomes what, because ultimately, that lays in the hand of God. And that's the first characteristics that I want you to see about who he is. Number 1 is that he is indeed the creator. Now, what's interesting is is that Moses is going to have a conversation and Moses is going to ultimately be responsible to go to Pharaoh. He's also responsible to go to the people of Israel and and one of the questions that Moses ask God is what do I say when the people ask who you are and then this is the response of God in Exodus chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 God said to Moses verse 14 I am who I am and he said say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you God also said to Moses, "'Say this to the people of Israel, "'The Lord, the God of your fathers, "'the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, "'the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. "'This is my name.'" And then he says, "'Forever.'" And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God tells Moses, "'You tell the people of Israel, "'I am who I am. "'You also tell them that they are to remember this forever.'" that I am going to always be the I am. Now, when you see the idea, I am who I am, you look at it and you go, what in the world does that mean? I am who I am. It seems a little bit conspicuous. Uh, It seems a little bit, in some ways, like hard and difficult to understand. And ultimately, the reality is it's a declaration of who God is, that he is bigger than what can be comprehensible. So in many ways, God is incomprehensible. You cannot understand him. He cannot be contained. He is the creator of all things. And so the implication of the idea, I am who I am, means that God never had a beginning. And that God will never have an end. So when you think about the idea of who God is as creator, I think oftentimes we ask the question, well, who created God? And and when did God have a beginning? And the reality is, listen with me, pay attention. I think there's a lot of sidebar conversations going on. Have you ever thought about this question? How in, how in the world do you and I even know space and time? Like, why do you have a watch? And what is time? And what is space? That you would know anything about it. See, the reality is that time doesn't exist with God because he's before time and ultimately he's beyond time he's beyond space the reality is he sustains himself he is i am he is the god who is he is the god who was and he is the god who always will be when you think about the idea of the creator the god of the universe the one who says i am who i am you need to know he had no beginning has no end he always is and always will be he is an absolute being. And the only reason that we can comprehend space or time or anything for that matter is because there is a God who has revealed himself to us. And so the idea is is before him there is nothing and after him there is nothing because he ultimately is everything. And everything that comes underneath his authority is utterly dependent upon him as the sustainer. He is the creator of life, he's the creator of the creation. And if He is the creator of all things, then all things that He creates are ultimately sustained by Him. That would be me and you and everything else. And so here's the thing. Everything that is created by God is created to rely and ultimately exist on Him. He is the great I Am. He is the one who is unexplainable, And everything that comes beneath him, whether it be you or me, whether it be the galaxies, all of it is ultimately totally dependent upon the creator. So God is creator. Now, if he is the creator, then you've got to ask yourself, okay, but what is the creator like? Okay, and and here's what you need to know. God is also spirit, now, when we think about created in the image of God, I think we can get a little confused here because we think, okay, well, how, how am I created in the image of God? Does that mean I look like God? Does it mean when I look at the, the mirror, I take on the same, uh, in same, uh, a lot of ways. Do, do I take on his attributes? Like, I mean, do I have his skin color or do I have his hair? The reality is, is God is spirit. Matter of fact, you see this reality and truth in John chapter 4, um, John, which was uh, an apostle of Jesus, he says this in John 4, 24. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, God is not physical. So he, he, is, he is not physical. he's not material, he does not have a body. That means that unless he reveals himself in some significant way, like a burning bush, he would be invisible. Now, we see obviously things in the Scripture where uh, those that would in some ways dawn on the presence of God see a significant presence, but we see him magnified in a variety of different ways in the Scripture. But what you need to know is that he is spirit. And one of the questions that I, I think is really important to ask is, how do I view God? And what do I think he looks like? because I think oftentimes we have grown up in a culture in the world and where we have this idea or this imagery of who God is and it's inconsistent with what the scriptures would tell us that he is he is spirit now the reason that matters and we'll unpack the implication of that a little bit later is because if God is spirit and you and I are his creation it is important to note that you and I are the only things in creation that also include a spirit of significance. For instance, your, your, your dog does not have a spirit. Plants don't have spirits. Trees don't have spirits. Unicorns don't have spirits, okay? What has a spirit? Us. Why do we have a spirit? It's because we are created in his image. But ultimately, I want you to realize, and we talked about this throughout the idea of redemption in the fall. We talked about it throughout the year. The reason that God has given us a spirit, and we'll unpack this more, is very, very important. Because if God gave you a spirit, that means that he is concerned with what you do in your physical body that houses the spirit. Because your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you and I have been made new in Christ Jesus, what we do is really, really, really important because the Spirit is a reflection of who God is in us. God is Spirit. That's why John says, not only is He Spirit, but we worship Him in Spirit and in truth. Very important to note. The third attribute is that God is holy. Now, among all the characteristics that you would think about God, let me ask you a question. What are a few things when you think about God, what would you think about? God is what? Good. Creator, I've given you that one. Powerful. Forgiving. Any others? Loving faithful forgiving what else so let me ask you a question and when we think about who god is do you know that the things that we oftentimes think about when we see who he is are things about his character like love or kindness or justice or his faithfulness or his forgiveness But what's interesting is, is that rarely do we see that third thing, which we'll put for you back on the screen, which is His holiness. Now look, here's the deal. Is that this is a really important quality, this idea of holiness. And the reason why is because this is one of the most important themes that you see throughout all your Bible. When you look at the word or the idea of holy in your Bible, it's mentioned six to 700 times, the word Holiness. If you take the verb form of holiness, which would be to be sanct- uh, sanctified or to be consecrated, the idea of being set apart, you would see the verb form two to three hundred times. The idea that, that that God is holy is really important. Now, but what's interesting is, is what you would see in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah, Isaiah um, sees a a picture of who God is, and, and he, he's going to hear the, the seraphim say the words, Holy, Holy, Holy. But what's also interesting is John sees a vision, is caught up to, to see what the heavenlies are going to look like. And in Revelation chapter 4, I'll put it for you up on the screen, but Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, this is what John sees it says, And there were four living creatures, each of them with six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now what's interesting is is that you see who He is. He is the Lord God Almighty, but He is holy, holy, holy. Now out of all the things that the angelic realm could be saying in the heavenlies, even now, as we are in this particular place, worshiping God in spirit and truth, reading God's word of all the things the angelic rim could be singing, they are not singing, and the God is loving, loving, loving. They're not saying God is forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. They're not saying God is faithful, faithful, faithful. They are not saying God is just, just, just. What are they singing? They are singing a song, a new song, that says, and God is holy, holy, holy. Now why do you think... That the characteristic that is so talked about in repetitive form in our scripture is God's holiness. And why do you think the angelic rim is even focused on that in this present moment? Right now, even in this moment, the angelic rim is likely reciting these words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is not a futuristic thing. I don't think that in my timeline, I think these are things that are happening right now. That even as we here on earth are reflecting on the God of Scriptures, On the God of Scripture, I think we see and should recognize a holy, holy, holy God and why that matters for us as the creation if he is the creator and he is the great i am and he is before all things and he is spirit and his desire is to be shown as holy that is really significant for us and the reason it's significant is because it shows who he is and why his character matters so let me ask you a question Do you think that you could love somebody perfectly? Do you think that if you were a judge with a gavel in your hand, do you think that you could judge fairly all the time? Do you think there are things that ultimately could sway your love, sway your affections? Are there things that could sway your Your decision making. Do you know where it would probably come in to play most? And where I see this idea of justice come in most, or where we would struggle to be just? I think we would struggle to be just when we are the ones who get pulled aside and we're the ones ticketed for an offense. We weren't wearing our seatbelt. And so we have to go before the judge, but then we plead our case and we give excuses about why we weren't wearing it or why we were speeding. And for whatever reason, we want to defend ourselves, right? And then we, we don't always see things accurately. I would say that's even true of our family members. So think about it this, okay? If somebody killed your family member, what would you want for them? Death row. Death row. Jail. Let me ask you a question. If it was your family member that killed somebody, what would you want? Hold on. Hold on. I don't know if you're paying attention. If you, if you had a family member that were killed by somebody else, what would you want? You would want justice, right? You would want justice for somebody. But if it was your family member that actually committed the crime, you would want grace or forgiveness doesn't matter they get whatever so you couldn't be swayed so here's the thing listen to this the area of this idea of character God is holy 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 is the idea that he can't sweat, be swayed he's always perfect his love is always perfect, and everything He does comes from a perfect place. So everything He does is loving because it is perfect love. Everything He does that is just is perfectly just because it flows out of His holiness. See, the reality is, is the idea of God being holy means that He can never, ever make a mistake. He's never sinned. He's never made a mistake. And you might look, well, well, I, I think God made a mistake with the way He created me. Not if He's holy, Well, I think he made a mistake with what he allowed us to go through. Not if he's holy. Because that means that everything he does comes and flows out of his holiness. First Peter. Uh, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. And what's interesting is about what it implies of us. Pay very close attention. And if you're with me still, then... First Peter chapter one verses fourteen through sixteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, who is holy? God, his son. You also should be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What do you think God is calling you to? Here it is. Pay very close attention. God, who is sovereign, which we'll talk about in just a second. God, who is infinitely indescribable, is the creator of all things. He is spirit. He places his spirit in you. He is holy, and he desires that you become like him in conduct. Do you understand why it is that God cares so much about his creation? Do you know why it is that he cares so much about you? Why he cares so much about the decisions you make? It's because ultimately if he wants and desires to put his spirit in you, then ultimately he desires that you would be a reflection of the creator. He desires that you and I would be what he calls us to be. And holiness is ultimately what God is calling you and I to. There's a guy named Jerry Bridges, and he says this, true salvation comes with a desire to be holy. Now look, I'm going to share something with you real quick, and I want you to lean in with me. One of the things that will mark a believer is holiness. And the more you become holy, the more you desire the things of God rather than the things of the world the more that you become holy, the more that you become a student of who God desires you to be. Now look, here's the thing. The more that you become holy and the more that you grow in the knowledge of God, the more that you desire to be like him. Now look, here's the deal. Look at me real quick. I don't want to pick on anybody, but I want to make a clear picture and a demonstration what I see as a speaker right here in this moment. And here's what I want you to see. I can see from my place right here, whether it be here, whether it be here. And I teach right now. I was counting it up this morning. I've taught over 900 times in the last 11 years. 900 times I've stood on this stage or on this floor in the last 11 years. And I can see, oftentimes, even the desire for people to grow in holiness. And here's why. Because people who grow in holiness are attentive to the things of God. And they're attentive to the scriptures. And they're attentive to those around them. Because holiness in us produces a desire to be more like God and the desire to overflow the attributes of God in our lives. Now, what's interesting is I can see, and here's what I can see. I can see all the sidebar conversations that are happening. You don't think I see it, I see it. Here's my wrestle, because as I desire that you become holy, my wrestle is in the flesh, do I embarrass you and call you out? That wouldn't edify you. Do, do I call you to more? Do I do that? No. I, I'm like, I don't know. If that's a benefit. But you know what blesses my heart? What blesses my heart is when I see people desiring more of God's word. and they have their Bible open, and they're taking notes, and they're not easily distracted, and they're writing questions. Why? does that in itself make them holy no but what is it doing it's producing in them an earnest desire to grow towards christlikeness and ultimately friends the reason i share that with you is because i want you to know that god desires for you to grow in holiness and if you would claim to be in this room and you would say i know that god has saved me listen i don't need your lip service i'm I think God is saying, look, don't just tell and profess people that you're a believer. Walk in it. Which is interesting because that's what Paul in his language throughout the New Testament, Testament, he continues to say, walk in a manner worthy in which you've been called. What is he talking about? He's saying live a holy life, be set apart, be sanctified, be consecrated. Every time you see those words, it's the verb form of holiness. And the reason that matters is because we are image bearers. And listen, holiness begins with your salvation. And when Christ comes into your life and he makes you a new creation, he puts his spirit inside of you, the very spirit that hovered over the waters, the very spirit that filled the temple in the old testament is the very spirit that god places in you and why does he do that because he desires that you become like him in holiness make sense the fourth quality is that god is sovereign he's sovereign now if god is sovereign then that means that you have to deal with who he is it's very similar to the quality of creator i am who i am but what's interesting is john says this about um, him or records even god saying this about himself in revelation 22 12 and 13 jesus saying behold i am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done and then he says i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last i'm the beginning and the end now i don't know what you believe about god if you think well you know he's just a force in the heavens Uh, you may think well he doesn't exist at all you may have questions about whether or not any of it is is real you may say it's a figment of people's imagination you may say well it's coercion from family members that it's ridiculous um, that it's not but what the scriptures say and if you believe the scriptures are reliable Jesus is saying I am the alpha and the omega beginning and the end which means he's sovereign and if he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it's, it's just important that you know that he is always the same, yesterday, today, forever, that he cannot be improved, he doesn't need to be improved, he's not being modified, He's there's nothing. He is the absolute standard of truth. Which means that if you are wondering what is true in the world, in a world that's is struggling for truth. He is truth. And He is the absolute standard of that. So you wonder what is true, what is right. You you want to point your life north and you want to head towards things that ultimately honor the Creator. He is the standard of truth. He is the standard of all that is right and good. He is the standard of what beauty is. He is beautiful. He is just. He is all that you and I could ever desire in a personal creator Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 11 in verses 33 and following he says oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways who has known the mind of the Lord who who can understand him is what he's saying he goes he can't. Isaiah the prophet said 700 years before Jesus, he goes, No one can know the mind of the Lord. His ways are loftier than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our, our thoughts. What's interesting is, is Paul even asked the question to, church, to the Church of Rome. He goes, Who could be God's counselor? Think about that. Does God need your knowledge? No. Does he need your opinion on who he is? Ultimately, no, he doesn't. It goes on and says, or who has given a gift to him that he might repay? Does God need to be repaid for anything? No, he he doesn't. He doesn't need to be repaid. And then it says this: for him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory, Amen. And so you see, there's four characteristics. But what's awesome is is that. In all of these characteristics of God being the creator and him being sovereign and him being holy and all of these things, what's really probably the coolest thing about who God is for me is that he's personal. That he's personal. Now, a lot of people think, well, God is distant. A lot of people on our planet would say they believe that God exists, but they don't believe that God will reveal himself to them. That they believe that God is distant, that God doesn't care, that God is... um, far off and that he could care less that he sees us as a bunch of peons but what's interesting is is that david actually says this in psalm chapter 8 verse 4 look what david says he says what is man as he's praying a prayer to god what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him so in david in all of his distress he goes god and all the things that are going on in the heavens, and all the magnificent things that you are, I have not only created, but you're sustaining. He goes, What is man that you are mindful of him? David says, It is amazing to me, God, that you would care for me, that God, that you are personal, that you are close. We see in multiple places throughout Scripture, Psalm 46, that God is that he's with the brokenhearted with the crushed in spirit. We we know that God is is a, a God who never leaves nor forsakes. We know he's personal. We see that he's close. But can I just show you two quick ways that God ultimately is incredibly personal? I would say the first one is that he came he became a man. A great example of that would be Philippians 2. I'm not going to read it to you, but in Philippians 2 it just talks about Christ that he willingly left heaven, became obedient to his Father, and then he even died on the cross for you. So if you know who Jesus is, Jesus has always been God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was with God. Uh, Sorry, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, is what John said. So he's talking about Jesus. He goes, Jesus has always been Colossians 1 tells us Jesus has always been. So what's interesting is God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the I Am, the one who cannot be explained, the one who cannot be comprehended, the one who is sovereign, the one who is spirit, he also became personal and he took on skin and he came in bodily form in the full deity of god and he lived among sinful men, and he was a perfect god man he never sinned he demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners romans 5 8 that he died for us Why did Christ come? Why did he become personal? Why did he die for you? Why did he become a God-man? So that he could ultimately restore you as the creation to the creator, house you with the spirit of God, and ultimately begin to demonstrate his purpose and even his characteristics in many ways into you and your life which is a really cool thing because not only did God become man, but he did that to redeem or rescue undeserving people, you and me. You know what's interesting about what Jesus says about himself in Luke chapter 19, verse 10? He says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Look, I don't know where you are in this room, but I can tell you this, in a room full of teenagers... Many of us in this room have come from hard places. Some of you broken homes. Look, your identity is only going to get more challenging. Who you are, who God is, are important questions that you have to answer quickly. Because, listen, if you don't answer these questions, by the time you're 14 or 15, listen, you're likely never to come up with solid, concrete evidence for them. That's what statistics would tell us. What does that mean? It means that there are more kiddos struggling with identity in the local church than ever have been. And listen, if you're not careful, by the time you're a freshman, there are people in here that you're about to be freshmen. By the time you're sophomores, if you don't discover who you are, who God is, why he created you, why you should care, why you should pay attention, why you should listen to him, the world will ultimately conform you to their desires, and it will leave you dysfunctional, twisted, worried, anxious, and you will struggle with identity. In other words, you will be lost. Spiritual lostness, spiritual blindness, all of those things ultimately are at stake. But friends, in a world of chaos, in a world of confusion, in a world where people are struggling to even understand their own identity, gender identity, how God made them, how God formed them, how God gave them desires, and all of those things, all of it, Is ultimately circling circling around two questions: Who is God, and who am I? Who is God, and who am I? And if God is real and God is personal, He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Ultimately, here's what He did: He desired to come as a God man, to take on sin, to be pierced for your transgressions. Isaiah 53 so that you might be restored and that you would not have to wander around in a wilderness called the world, but that you could have a rescuer, a provider, one who brings you across the sea of doubt, the valley of despair, and the hills of condemnation, so that you might see a rescuer and a redeemer and one who desires to seek and to save that which is lost. Why? Ultimately, would he do that? Because he loves you. And what's so cool about this and the last attribute is that this has been God's plan from the very beginning because God's immutable. And when you see the idea of God being immutable, let me just kind of put it on a language where I could could say, because I have to go look words up like this. Um, It means that God can't change. That's what you would see. God told the prophet Malachi to tell the people of Israel, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3 6, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And here's the deal He's about to tell the people of Israel, and he's about to tell them that he is not pleased with the way that they're doing things. But what's interesting is, he goes, I am the Lord God, I do not change. And it is for your benefit that God does not change. Because if God ever changed, it means He would just smite all of us. Because He could actually do that and still be just. But God doesn't change, and He doesn't consume all the people of the earth. Matter of fact, Peter says that God continues to be patient, longing that no one would perish apart from Him. So in God's patience and loving kindness, He is hoping to restore us as the creation back to the Creator. He is being patient. He is being kind. He is seeking and is saving what is lost. He desires in His Im- immutability and. To not change and to be constant and to be the same. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Which is really cool. Before Jesus came to earth as a God-man, he was always God. And isn't that really cool that Jesus was the same before the world was created as he was when the world was created. And isn't it really cool that Jesus is the same when he came to earth as he was in the heavens. And isn't it really cool that now that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, isn't it the same that Jesus is the same person now as he's always been. Isn't it really cool to know that God is not changing? And listen, can I just tell you that there's one thing that is changing in the world almost every day, and that is you and me. Our hearts are changing. They're oftentimes tossed to and fro, our minds are changing, the information that we are taking in and consuming, the things we watch are changing, our desires are changing. Listen, if there is anything that is changing, it is you and me. And listen, can I just tell you, sixth graders, you're going to have some significant changes in the next couple of years. Seventh graders, you're in the middle of a lot of those changes, and you look back and you're like, dude, I'm like four foot taller than i was just a couple years ago and you see all these significant changes and look you you look around we laugh and we go but listen that's how god designed you the only difference is can i just have your attention real quick And i'm going to close the only difference between you and and really the people that we read about in the bible is by the time they were 13 they were expected to be adults Mary, the mother of jesus the virgin incarnate that brought the, the, the one who brought the incarnate Son of God, likely thirteen or fourteen year old. Which blow your mind, right? Because you're like, oh gosh, I'm I'm just now a teenager. Listen, I want you to understand that the world is changing, but there's a God in heaven who hasn't. His character always remains the same. His desires always remain the same. His plans always remain the same. And though our culture is confused, there is a God in heaven who is super clear. Super clear about His desires and super clear about who He made you to be and who He wants you to imitate. Can I just tell you, friends, that God wants you to imitate Him. And He wants you to desire Him and His holiness. And here's why. Because ultimately, His holiness sets you apart from the rest of the world and it saves you from a lot of pain, despair, and hopelessness. But friends, can I just tell you, and I'll close with this. Every single this person in this room, you're going to learn in one of two ways. There's only two ways to learn. You'll either learn through precepts, which means you're, you like to be taught. You write down, you learn, you, you teach. But the vast majority of deaths in the world, we learn by pain. You won't recognize God's holiness and you won't recognize that he's pursuing you until you know you're lost. You remember the young man? He left his father. It's called the prodigal son. Went and squandered his belongings and life with the pigs. His father, a Jewish man, was teaching him the ways of God all along his life, most likely. The problem is he didn't have any time for his father's words. He thought his father was a fool. He thought his father was constricting him. He thought his father had just plans to to, to keep the keep the man down, keep the boy down. But what did he want? He wanted his inheritance and he wanted to do his own life, his way. He wanted to seek what was his. And ultimately, it led him to seek the approval of man. He finally learned by pain because he had nothing else but rock bottom and some pigs. And that's one way you can learn. Can I just tell the best way to learn? Is through God's precepts. To love God's word to rejoice in His Spirit, to be taught by Him through His Holy Spirit, through faithful, reliable people, Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, that can in- take the message of God's hope and entrust it to one another. And that's what you get to do. You get to go to small group right now and you get to take God's Word and some good questions and you get to impart that truth and that wisdom to one another in hopes that you and I would... Con- Conform not to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would become like Christ, that by his spirit and by his kindness and by his grace, we would take on the character of God who in his creation created us to be like him in our foolishness. Adam and Eve fell into sin. God says, I'll reconcile it. I'll seek and save what's lost. I'll fulfill my purposes. And isn't that really cool that God is mindful of you? And that you could be a part of that purpose. No matter how small, no matter how wise, no matter how you did on the star test, God loves you. And he has a purpose and a plan for you. And he wants to put his spirit in you. And he wants to make us new. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for some kiddos in this room, Lord, that you would just impart your truth to them. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see, God, who you are and what you desire for. As we go to small group, may you bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen.